Picture all the pipes in your building and the water running through them. These pipes deliver water from its source to where it's needed, whether that be your bathroom sink in the morning or shower at night. Now imagine these pipes are a circulatory system, transporting blood from the heart to our lungs, back to the heart, and to each of our important organs to provide adequate oxygenation, nutrition, and handle waste removal. In such an important system, preventing leaks or bleeding is crucial. Similar to the various components of pipe fittings, the different cells and proteins involved in coagulation each play a unique and important role. When there is a deficiency or defect in any of these players, leaking, manifesting as abnormal bleeding, can occur. Today, our patient is presenting with bleeding symptoms, and you are the doctor. Welcome to The Internet Work, a podcast made by internal medicine residents meant to serve you better on the wards and on call. Today's episode is entitled Find the Leak, the bloody truth about bleeding disorders. Now, for a minute physiology. Returning to our pipe analogy, picture the pipe itself as the endothelium supported by surrounding connective tissue, predominantly composed of collagen and the cracks at sites of vascular injury where leaking or bleeding will occur. When subendothelial collagen is exposed to blood, it activates platelets, the first on the scene, and stimulates formation of a platelet plug. A key player here is von Willebrand factor, which anchors to expose subendothelial collagen and unravels itself like a red carpet to grab receptors on activated platelets as they fly by. This platelet plug is the first step in stopping a bleed, like putting an adhesive glue over a leaky pipe joint. Tissue factor, when released by damaged endothelial cells, triggers the second key step in clot formation. This occurs via the sequential activation of enzymes, otherwise known as clotting factors, to ultimately produce thrombin, which converts fibrinogen to fibrin. Positive feedback throughout the clotting factor pathway results in additional thrombin production and contributes to fibrin clot stabilization. This process is like the metal welding required to ensure the integrity of the pipe connection. Given the several important key players in this process, including platelets, von Willebrand factor, and all the different clotting factors, a problem with any of these steps can result in an abnormal bleeding phenotype. All right, so now that we've talked about the basic physiology, let's talk about the approach. You are in the outpatient clinic and asked to see a 25-year-old woman with a history of heavy menstrual bleeding, easy bruising, and epistaxis. The first step in the approach to abnormal bleeding is to use your history-taking skills to characterize the timing, type, and severity of bleeding, as this will help you understand if her bleeding history is worrisome. This is a critical step as women naturally bleed, so it can be hard to distinguish between normal versus abnormal bleeding. To assist in gathering a bleeding history, validated bleeding assessment tools, otherwise known as BATS, can be used. BATS are questionnaires that guide you through the bleeding history. One such questionnaire is a clinician-administered condensed MCM-DM1, which scores patients on severity and presence of epistaxis, bruising, bleeding from minor wounds, menstrual bleeding, postpartum hemorrhage, oral cavity bleeding, post-dental extraction, gastrointestinal, post-surgical, muscle, joint, and central nervous system bleeding. 
A bleeding score of greater or equal to four suggests a bleeding disorder in adults and warrants further investigation, whereas a score less than four with a negative family history helps rule out a bleeding disorder. The initial study validating this questionnaire had a sensitivity of 100% and specificity of 87% for von Willebrand disease, which is the most common bleeding disorder. A link to these questionnaires will be provided on our website at www.theinternetwork.com along with our infographic. One crucial piece of information to clarify on history is whether the bleeding symptoms have been lifelong or if there is a bleeding history within the family suggestive of an inherited bleeding disorder. As mentioned, the most common inherited bleeding disorder is von Willebrand disease, where there is a quantitative or qualitative deficiency of von Willebrand factor, which impairs the ability to form a platelet plug, the important first step in achieving hemostasis. The bleeding phenotype in patients with von Willebrand disease typically involves mucocutaneous bleeding, such as heavy menstrual bleeding, epistaxis, easy bruising, and oral cavity bleeding. By contrast, hemophilia A and B, which are inherited bleeding disorders with a deficiency in factor 8 and 9 respectively, typically present with delayed and deeper bleeding into joints, soft tissues, or muscles. Type 3 von Willebrand disease, which has complete absence of von Willebrand factor, results in some overlap in presentation, as von Willebrand factor plays another important role in acting as a chaperone for factor 8. Thus, in type 3 von Willebrand disease, factor 8 levels will also be low, in a similar range as some patients with hemophilia A. If, however, the bleeding symptoms have only started recently, this may be suggestive of an acquired bleeding disorder. Acquired platelet disorders such as drug-induced thrombocytopenia or immune thrombocytopenia, which impacts the ability to form a platelet plug, can present like von Willebrand disease, One common example of this is liver disease, which can cause thrombocytopenia through decreased thrombopoietin production, as well as through portal hypertension-associated splenomegaly. Liver disease also impairs formation of fibrin clot generation, as most clotting factors, including thrombin and fibrinogen, are produced by hepatocytes. Important questions to ask on history to assess for potential acquired or inherited bleeding disorders include constitutional symptoms to assess for hematologic malignancy, symptoms of anemia if the bleeding is severe, a review of previous comorbidities that may affect coagulation, such as liver or renal disease, a full list of medications to rule exacerbating or causative drugs, family history of bleeding disorders, and social history for alcohol use or naturopathic remedies. It is also helpful to gather information about previous interventions, such as blood transfusions and oral or intravenous iron supplementation. On physical exam, you want to complete the usual cardiopulmonary exam. However, it will also be important to look for areas of bruising, petechiae, or purpura. Look for stigmata of chronic liver disease. Examine the oral cavity for wet purpura. Look for signs of anemia, such as subconjunctival pallor, as well as palpate for lymphadenopathy and abdominal organomegaly. Once you've completed the history and physical, if you are concerned for an underlying bleeding disorder, the question becomes, what do you do next? This brings us to the workup for a patient with a suspected bleeding disorder. If the patient has a positive bleeding score, the patient will require further investigations. 
Because tests for von Willebrand disease, platelet dysfunction, or single factor deficiencies are difficult to interpret and require a specialized laboratory, patients should be referred to a hematologist for further evaluation. Initial investigations that are helpful in determining the severity of bleeding include a complete blood count, iron levels, transferrin saturation, and ferritin to evaluate for iron deficiency or iron deficiency anemia resulting from the bleeding. Liver function tests and creatinine are also helpful to assess for contributing comorbidities. Coagulation tests that are classically ordered, such as APTT or PT and INR, are actually not that helpful, as they only have sensitivities of about 1-2% for single-factor deficiencies and are generally not affected by von Willebrand factor or platelet dysfunction. You might ask, if there's not much initial testing that can be done, what can you do in the meantime while waiting for a hematology consultation? Let's move on to our management. In the outpatient setting, depending on the type of bleeding disorder, specific interventions may be indicated, such as DDAVP for von Willebrand disease or factor replacement concentrates for factor deficiencies. Management that is common to all patients with bleeding is antifibrolytic therapy with tranexamic acid and iron supplementation to treat iron deficiency or iron deficiency anemia. Oral tranexamic acid can be started for heavy menstrual bleeding or other mucosal bleeding, except for hematuria typically at 1 to 1.5 grams every 6 to 8 hours from onset of bleeding to when it resolves. Given that the medication can cause nausea, it is best taken with food during breakfast, lunch, and dinner. If the patient is iron deficient, oral iron supplementation can be initiated with ferrous gluconate, ferrous sulfate, or ferrous fumarate. Each is dosed at 300 milligrams daily, but contains increasing amount of elemental iron with 35 milligrams, 60 milligrams, and 100 milligrams respectively. Since vitamin C is important in increasing gut absorption of iron, it is helpful to advise your patient to take their iron pills with acidic food, such as citrus fruits or juices. Aside from taking iron with vitamin C, it is best taken on an empty stomach, with specific caution to avoid dairy, tea, or coffee, as these can impair absorption of iron. Patients should also be advised to avoid taking their calcium supplements, antacids such as Tums, proton pump inhibitors, H2 blockers, and thyroid medications when taking iron. Now, time for a medicine minute. In 2018, there was an updated Cochrane systematic review evaluating the use of antifibrinolytics for heavy menstrual bleeding. There were 13 randomized controlled trials included, and the authors concluded that antifibrinolytic treatment, such as tranexamic acid, was more effective than placebo, NSAIDs, oral progestogens, ethamsalate, and herbal remedies at treating heavy menstrual bleeding. Overall, there has been increasing evidence for use of tranexamic acid in a variety of settings, including in trauma, surgery, and postpartum hemorrhage, with outcomes that show reduction in transfusion requirements as well as reduced morbidity and mortality. So, when seeing a patient with abnormal bleeding, don't forget to consider tranexamic acid. Thank you for listening to today's episode entitled Find the Leak. The Bloody Truth About Bleeding Disorders. Today's episode was written by Dr. Ying Ling, internal medicine resident, and reviewed by Dr. Michelle Schultzberg, hematology, and Dr. Jonathan Alon, general internal medicine. As always, we have our associated infographic as well as resources at www.theinternetwork.com. This episode was recorded and produced by Allison Lai. The Internetwork series was created by Allison Lai and developed by Leah Karianopoulos and Zara Morali, and is overseen by Dr. Daniel Brent Vegas. Music production by Lakshman Vizant the Mohan. 
If you like these podcasts, please like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Internet Work, and we hope to see you again soon.